Welcome back to the Metal Exchange. Justin and Chris here with you for another week, and this time we go way back to 1976 with Rush's 2112. Before we get there, though, Chris, bud, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I can't complain. Uh, it's been a little bit of a crazy week, but uh, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing too bad. Got to enjoy quite a bit of Rush this week, which we'll get into in a moment. Um, but before we do, I just wanted to mention a couple of things that I heard this week that really kind of stuck out to me. The first uh, was a band called Sincato, and this is actually the solo project of guitarist Charlie Robbins, who plays for Artificial Language, an American-based prog band that's um, kind of up and coming. I know they're playing Prog Power next year. I don't know if they have quite the following um, that some of the other prog bands uh, do, but this was a solo release, and it is an instrumental album, kind of short. But the guitar playing on this album is phenomenal, and so is the songwriting. It has lots of, like, flamingo guitars, uh, a lot of Spanish uh, influence there, and just some of the most unbelievable riffs that I've heard all year. So I'm typically not an instrumental fan, but I thought this album was really, really good. And if you are a fan of, like, kind of that genty prog sound, you'll you'll eat this up. Cool. Uh, not to be confused with artificial intelligence. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which is more of a Rush thing, which we'll get into. Um, another another band that came out with their new album is Lord of the Lost. Their last album got rave reviews. This effort was a double CD called Judas. came out a couple of days ago. Really, really good. Uh, kind of dense. I thought it was a little long, and I'm not sure. Obviously, they had a story to tell. It's a, it's a concept album based on, obviously, Judas, but... Very good. I need to spend some more time with it. Um, I, I don't think it grabbed me quite the way that the, the last album did, but it's gotten re-reviews, and I think I just need to spend some more time with it. They have that like gothic vibe um, that that a lot of bands seem to have now, almost in the vein of a typo negative or a hymn or something like that. But it's it's really cool, and there's some outstanding tracks on this disc. I'd like to post one during the week um, if you haven't heard that. And then one other album, which I think you'll particularly enjoy, another German band called Cambrium, and that's with a K. They came out with an album called Synthetic Era, and I don't know how to describe this. They call themselves melodic death metal. There's definitely elements of that, but I also hear a lot of symphonic metal and power metal. And what kind of makes these guys stand out from a lot of their counterparts is that they have like this synthwave sound going on. You said Almost counterparts. Like, suppose that. You said counterparts. Yeah, they. Well, yeah, there you go. Um, like a this synthwave sound, almost like a Voyager thing going on. It's it's really, really, really interesting stuff, and I want to spend more time with this album as well. I think you'll particularly enjoy it. So I'll, I'll definitely post something during the week, and uh, I think you'll like it. It's it's they're kind of an up and coming band uh, as well. Very cool. Yeah, that's uh, quite the quite the endorsement. So yeah, uh, I, for sure. Um, did you listen to anything this week of note? Not really. Um, <laughs> it was just a very, um, very crazy week for me uh, on the work front. So I really only had a chance to to listen to um, this Rush album and um, check out the new Rhapsody of Fire single, uh, "Glory for Salvation," off of which is the title track for their upcoming album, which is now available for pre order. Um, How was that? Than- I haven't heard it yet. It's good. Um, it's. I thought it was a little more um, geared towards the old Rhapsody sound than the previous single that they released. Um, 
but uh you know solid stuff um didn't blow me away but um it wasn't bad um but uh other than that i think the only other stuff i listened to was probably just things that i had mentioned last week so um as uh as things get a little bit uh, uh crazy with work the next few weeks i probably won't have as much time to listen to the newer things but um I'm sure I'll get back on the, the, the horse at some point eventually, as I always tend to do. Nice. And uh, while we're here, let's let's get back to uh, to Rush, which obviously you did have a chance to listen to. This, um, huh, where do I go with this? Rush has such an extensive discography that it was kind of hard to even choose one particular album. But I chose this because for a long time, it was my favorite Rush album. And I played it so, so much. And quite frankly, I played it so, so much this week. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts um, about this. But when did you first hear Rush? Because I know you've been listening to them for a while. I know they're not like your go-to band, but I, I know that we had been discussing them for you know almost 25 years now. Yeah, I was actually looking forward to talking about this um, for that very reason. Because while m- pretty much every every band that we've talked about up until this point... Uh, I started listening to, you know, that, that mixtape that I always talk about that kind of started it all. Um, all those bands were bands that I didn't become familiar with until that mixtape entered my life. Um, Rush is a band that I was aware of prior to this. And I mean, this album came out eight years before we were, or six years before we were born. Um, but, uh, I remember, you know, growing up, my mom constantly was listening to classic rock radio. And I remember uh, 102.7 and 92.3, the two stations uh, in New York for classic rock, WNEW and WXRK. And I um, I remember when, um, when the Rush's Roll the Bones album was coming out in 1991, uh, they would play... Um, Dreamline and and the, the title track on the radio on the classic rock stations and I remember really liking those songs and um, but I didn't really know who who they who really Rush was I was nine at the time so it wasn't really like I had the internet and I could go like dig deeper and that was pretty much my the extent of my knowledge of Rush until going back to the mixtape until that mixtape, which actually uh, our friend Ralph had put um, passage to Bangkok on that mixtape. And that was kind of like, I I was kind of like, so is rush a metal band or where does this kind of fit in? And and so it's interesting because I think this is the first album we're talking about that really isn't a metal album. Um, I know that it inspired a ton of metal bands, but um I don't know that anybody would really consider Rush a, a metal band in any respect. Definitely more of a, a prog rock band, if anything else. Yeah, it's interesting because when you think back to those early bands we used to listen to, Rush inspired a lot of them. But to say that they were in the same vein, I, I'm not sure I would go that far. Would you Would you agree with that? It was just like the natural extension, but they, they, these were like the grandfathers to all those bands. They, 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 these were the guys that started it all. Yeah, I mean, you definitely, when you listen to a band like Dream Theater, um, you definitely hear there's a lot of influence coming from a band like Rush. A Dream Theater is almost like if you take a Rush and you metal, metal-fy it, I guess, and just like add some heavier guitars and a little bit more uh, wild keyboard solos and um, 
I think it was like a natural progression from just being a rock band into turning this kind of style of music into a, a metal, um, into a metal, uh, to like a type of metal, which prog metal would eventually, you know, turn into. And, um, and I, I, I don't think we ever promised that every album we talk about would be a metal album. So I'm glad that, that we're doing something that's a little bit outside of the, uh, of that box as large as that box can be. Um, yeah. So like, I mean, I, I'm sure you could attest to the fact that so many people that we know that are diehard metal fans are also big fans of, of rush. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find a prog metal fan that isn't a fan of rush because as I said, it's kind of where it all started, but by the same token, rush has, you know, up until obviously Neil's passing a couple of years ago, and these guys were doing arena tours well into their sixties. I mean, they've been doing it for you know close to fifty years. It's it's incredible when you look back at just the sheer number of albums and and the fact that basically every rock fan in the world acknowledges that these guys are just rock royalty. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. What was your um? How were you introduced to Rush initially? S- similar to you, I think it was a little bit later on. I think it was probably in the mid-90s, somewhere around 94, 95. I remember hearing Tom Sawyer on the radio and thinking to myself, this is catchy but different. And you could even tell just with like some of the drum fills on, on that song. And then obviously Limelight as well, which gets even a ton of radio play to this day. Um, I, I, you know, those those moving pictures tracks are still played constantly on classic rock radio. That was really my first memory of the band. Um, and then obviously I remember hearing Passage to Bangkok. I think the reason I gravitated towards 2112, not only in terms of just my taste for the album, but also because uh, what I, why I wanted to discuss it was because I think you could argue that the title track maybe the first prog metal song ever, possibly, um, just because of some of the absolutely uh, over-the-top riffs and Getty's um, memorable and incredible vocals on that one particular song. I think there's an argument to, to be made, and, and I would argue that there would be no a change of seasons if there was no 2112, um, let alone any other band, A Pleasant Shade of Grey with Fate's Warning, uh, or, or really any of those epic, epic tracks because Rush, you know, Rush was doing that heavy pro- progressive rock before anyone else. And, and 2112, I, I think kicked it off just in terms of, um, first of all, if, if nothing else, just widespread popularity because even, even the band has gone on to say that they believe that this was actually the first quote unquote Rush album. They had released three prior, but this is really when they began hitting their stride and, and, and receiving a lot of commercial success. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's all very, very true. Um, I mean, do you find that like the previous three albums have any of that, anything that's kind of precursoring like what they would do with the, the 20 minute track 2112? Or would you say that this is where they went from being a rock band to a prog rock band. So I think it, I think it's, it touches on it. The first two albums, which were um, obviously the self-titled debut and fly by night are much more in that. Like, I guess I'll say like a Led Zeppelin vein, just like that heavy, heavy rock. 
it really wasn't until their third album, Caress of Steel, which had come out, I guess it was just, you know, a couple of months prior to 2112, ironically enough, where they started going into these longer anthemic tracks. And, and obviously the two that come to mind are the Necromancer, which is about 12 and a half minutes, and the Fountain of Lameth, which is almost 20 minutes. But for whatever reason, I don't think it had that heavy, heavy feel that uh, it's not as heavy as, as 2112 for sure. Both iconic tracks, but it was really where they started transitioning, like we so often talk about, into the, that, that iconic Rush sound that you would hear on 2112 and, and really which would carry through uh, into the 90s where they kind of changed their sound a little bit. But everything after 2112, A Farewell to Kings, Hemisphere, a lot of these albums have longer iconic tracks you know, and maybe not 20 minutes, but either 10 minutes or 15 minutes in length. And they really just set the stage for, um, I guess, accepting long non-radio tracks into the mainstream because they really started blowing up by this point, as I said. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that you mentioned that early like Led Zeppelin comparison because I remember um, when I was in college and I, and I started to kind of dig into the back catalog a bit. And I remember listening to the Chronicles, um, you know, greatest hits compilation and, and hearing the song finding my way, which is the first track on, on their, you know, first self-titled album and thinking to myself, Oh my God, this is like a Led Zeppelin song. Even the vocals are so like, um, so similar to, uh, to Robert Plant. I was just like, wow, this is, um, this is really, really interesting um just uh and then like i think working man was another one that i was familiar with and i like they move on to the second album fly by night and and i love the song the title track it's such a that's a song that i put that song on if i just want to be in like be put in a good mood something about it is just so like uplifting to me i love it um so yeah i kind of like find that I agree with you that those first two albums were kind of more of a traditional, more traditional rock of, of the time of the early seventies. And um, you, yeah. And like you said, like it seemed like they were kind of taking a turn at Caress of Steel. My understanding is that it didn't do very well. Caress of yeah. Steel, And that, and that 2112 was kind of like a big commercial success after Caress of Steel didn't do um quite as well as they had hoped and also shout out to bastille day which is uh later this week that timing being ironic as it is yeah it's it's funny because caress of steel did not do well commercially i think prog rock fans just love it because songs like the necromancer like i mentioned are really just epic tunes but their their management was really just trying to keep them on their label prior to the release of 2112 and they kind of suggested that they go into a different direction similar to that Led Zeppelin sound and you know Rush in their infinite wisdom decided to do the exact opposite go back into another <laughs> concept album and release arguably their most epic track ever and one that couldn't be played on the radio because there was no way that rock radio was going to play a 20 minute track and and as we get deeper into that and some of the other tunes it just you know I'm not sure that any of these tunes are really radio friendly with maybe the exception of lessons. And when I hear that, I really think the the Zeppelin vibe is strong there uh, more so than any other track on the disc. But, um, you know, a, a ballad like tears is not going on the radio. I think people would just turn it right off because it's just, uh, you know, 
good good ballad for sure, but it's not like one of those catchy tracks. It's kind of depressing. Yeah, it's a very somber song. Uh, somber song. Um, yeah, um, I think I want to say that um, Temples of Syrinx, which is a, I think the second part of the twenty one twelve suite, was released as a single, and I could totally see that on its own as a single um but Which yeah i mean great but it loses something without the rest of this i'll, I'll tell yeah, you I'll just... no no I, and I i agree and i was gonna say like you know what happens when you listen to your label and they tell you to make something commercial you get sabotages fight for the rock so good for <laughs> good for rush to do what they wanted to do and clearly you know they were right to do it yeah it's a hundred percent and let's just jump into it i'll, I'll say this twenty one twelve for me is a top five song of all time. I feel that that 20 minutes goes by and it feels like five minutes. It's, it's one of those songs where it's just perfect. Um, you, you, you have this imagery that Neil Pert in his lyrics just paints this really fantastic picture. And for those that don't know, it's, it's a conceptual song. It, it's clearly inspired by Ayn Rand, the, the author. And it's really this futuristic, um, suite, if you will, that just kind of transcends the first side of the album or, or the first 20 minutes of the album. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those tracks that even though it's hard to relate personally, I guess, to the, to, to the, to the imagery, it's just, the picture is painted so well that it's just, to me, it's, it's one of the greatest songs ever written. And, and I just cannot get enough of it. And I must've played it 12 times this week I just wanted to keep putting it on. And this is having listened to this album hundreds of times. I mean, I, I, it's been, I, you know, I'm just such a big fan of, of, of their early stuff here. I, I will say that this was, this week has probably been the most I've ever listened to 2112 in its entirety. Um, just because for so many years, I would always listen to the first two parts, Overture and Temples of Syrinx, and just be like, all right, I don't want to listen to the rest of this 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 20-minute song because those first two parts are so good. Um, and and now I'm, I'm finally, like, ingesting this, this entire song on the whole and realizing what an, like, absolute masterpiece it is um, all the way through, hearing um, some of the some of the the um the parts or the themes uh the musical themes in those first two uh parts overture and temples of syrinx being revisited in right. later parts of the song um there's there's you know slower parts there's uh, unbelievable guitar solos um 
I think the two minutes of Temples of Syrinx are, for me, the highlight of the 20 minutes. Um, but, I mean, the whole thing is just really fantastic. Yeah, I'll just, I mean, we, we could probably do an entire episode on the song, but I'll, I'll, I'll just say this. When you factor in the guitar solo at the end of the presentation section, which is kind of like, uh, I guess we'll call it the middle section of, of the song, and you combine that with like these, over, an incredible guitar solo, as if that wasn't enough, it's on top of Neil Peart's mind-blowing drumming it's just that it's like a musical orgasm it's crazy and to me like this is what epitomizes like rock and roll i'm not talking about prog i'm not talking about metal i'm just saying to me this is the epitome of rock and roll right here and it's the same thing with the solo and at the end of soliloquy absolutely like mind-blowing stuff here and i'll say this the rest of the album doesn't hold a candle to this song in my opinion it's my song of the week it's probably my song of the year it could be my song of the podcast that's how much i love this particular song but it, it never gets old and to me it's just the epitome of rock and roll well I, I'm going to bring up Goldberg again because the streak continues. It's definitely my song of the week. And I'm not sure really how anybody would, would choose <laughs> anything else from this album. I mean, not to say that the rest of the album isn't excellent, but I mean, this this song is without a doubt in a league of its own. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fantastic. And and like I said, the 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 imagery, the um the whole story, which I won't get into in too much detail just because I want to get to the rest of the album, but it's really just phenomenal stuff. And, and I'll passage to Bangkok, which is obviously the first, um, the first song on the quote unquote second side of the album. 
is another masterpiece, but it's got a different feel to it. And, and with this, I think it's just a lyrical gem, just the way that they interweave the the different places around the world. What I didn't know was that it's actually just an ode to marijuana, <laughs> and a lot of these, uh, a lot, all of these places are just where they found the best weed. And I thought that that was really, really interesting because I never knew that. But it gives me, it paints the song in a much different light from what I originally thought it was. Yeah, I like. I just, I think it's just such a great follow, like follow up from 2112 which is like this like you know futuristic space opera and then it just goes into like all right now we're just a bunch of uh like just a bunch of rock stars smoking pot and the i love i I mean this is a song i've listened to just so much in the last 20 almost 25 years and um the guitar solo is to me is just still so good like i love that guitar solo that's a crank it up in the car kind of guitar solo just really awesome song like um i didn't know about the underrated definitely although they do tend it does seem to be played fairly often live in their history i guess maybe more so um towards the end of their uh their live run but um it is a very cool song and uh I almost want to say that Ralph had put it on that mixtape. It's towards the end of the second side of the tape because he needed like a shorter song to kind of fill out the rest of the tape. And that's kind of, I think why maybe it was the only non-metal song that was placed. I mean, it didn't seem out of place to me at the time by, by any means, but I think he needed something short to fit. And so he just, you know, obviously 2112 would have been like, you know, just one side of a tape. So he went with the, uh, the next track, which is a little bit shorter. Um, but yeah, he never mentioned to me, maybe he didn't know about the, the pot thing. So that's very interesting. Yeah. We're also 15 at the time. So maybe that had something to do with it. What did you think of the third track twilight zone? Like this one a lot. Um, this is another one of my favorite tracks of the, um, I guess you call it side B. Um, cause if you bought this album on vinyl, 2112 was the entirety of the first side um i i thought it was uh catchy um i thought it was interesting that it was actually um i mean not surprisingly um kind of like an ode to the old television show the twilight zone um i believe um i think there's a uh, credit in the in the uh, liner notes to like a ode to like or just a something to Rod Ster- Rod Serling who had um ha- who had passed away before 1976 and um so clearly they were big fans of the show and and this song is kind of like a, I guess an ode to that but um I thought this was catchy I don't remember this song all that well up until um up until listening to it I, I want to say. The 2112, the first two parts of 2112, Passage to Bangkok and Tears were really the only tracks I was very familiar with going into this week. And the other songs really were kind of like a relearning them, I guess, for me. And this was one of those songs where like, I don't remember this song, but um, I wish I had because it's a, I, I think it's a really good song. To me, it was a bit of a letdown. And I know the song because I just know the album. But I feel like when you have 2112 open it and then Passage to Bangkok, which is a just a great short track to follow it, it's a good song. I don't think it's a great song. 
not bad by any means, but just something about it, I feel was a letdown, but I think that that's more of a testament to what precedes it. I think that if you listen to it in isolation, it's probably even better. It's just kind of sandwiched in the middle here. And it's, you know, it's like, it's like being the fan of the Oreo cookie, but only liking the chocolate because this is like the vanilla in the middle of the Oreo. That's kind of the way oh I would describe Rod, it. Rod Serling is, is turning over in his Not that right I have now. any issue with the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's a fantastic show, but I, I just, it's, it, it's, to me, it's an slightly above average track, borderline average, not bad, just not phenomenal. What I prefer is the next track, Lessons, which is kind of, I, I think, arguably the the deepest cut on the album uh really awesome guitar intro i love i'm a sucker for that acoustic guitar sound um and even though it again as i mentioned earlier has a lot of that zeppelin vibe which is um kind of representative of that early rush sound this was an alex lifeson solo song he writes this by himself he and it's obvious because it's definitely a guitar driven sound but it's for some reason, other than the fact that I think it could have been on Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti, which came out the year prior, I really enjoy this tune, and it's one of my favorites on the album. So this is actually my least favorite song on the album. I, I like Twilight Zone better, personally. I think this is... I mean, I agree with you about the... like. I like... It's such an iconic, that acoustic rush sound that opens up the album. Um, it's almost kind of like Led Zeppelin light, in a way. Um this is definitely, I think you mentioned it before, like this would have been the big rate, like the radio song. I think if like I was the producer and I was like, we need something radio friendly. Um, not a bad song by any means. Um, to say that it's the least favorite song in 2112 means that like, oh, it's only a seven instead of a 10. Right. right. Um, but I do like Twilight Zone just a little bit better. I think it just has a little more oomph to it. Lessons is a little bit kind of blah to me, but, um, I also kind of wanted to say that, like, I like that these songs provide such a a, a different vibe than Twenty One Twelve does. Um, I, I like. I feel like you really kind of go on a trip with this album with different types of sounding songs, and um, this is another one that I think um, is just kind of like this mid tempo kind of. I mean, very classic rock. Uh, style song and then kind of leads into this um very sad <laughs> like somber ballad uh tears yeah it's funny it's tears was the song that i actually struggled with the most this week and i'll say this i used to love the song i mean absolutely love it and i would have put it up there with anything on the album i still like it i'm just not on, not as high on it as i used to and it's interesting because as we do this each week sometimes there are tracks which i overlooked when I first heard things and I really kind of just love them now, you know, going back and listening to it over and over. This is a track that's actually gone down for me. And maybe it's just because as I got to know more of the Rush discography and I knew some of the other ballads that they wrote, which I thought were better than this one, um, it kind of went down a little bit in the pantheon of Rush tunes. Again, to your point, not that it's a bad song. It's, it, it, it's a good song on a phenomenal uh, album, but I, I I I liked it better when I was younger. I didn't love it as much this week, and again, I listened to it a, a lot. Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. It, it it's I think it's it's good for like a a ballad, I guess. Um, 
I think it's very heartfelt and um, I think it, it has its place on the album. It's not my favorite rock ballad in the world, but I think it, it's definitely iconic. Um, Cause I think you just, I don't know that you heard a lot of songs that were like that at the time. So um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite a bit uh, going back and listening to it again. And um, you know, again, it's not my favorite song on the album, but um, again, it's like another, just another uh, side of Rush, which I think they showed so many different sides of on this album on the whole, which is impressive considering the entire album is under 40 minutes long. Um, they just show a lot of sides of themselves and, and, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to be remiss by uh, leaving out a, a ballad, I guess. So, yeah. And, and to me, the album actually ends with what I would consider like a perfect closing song, a slow build uh, with something for nothing really picks up and I love the imagery with the, you know, the cool, the inspiration kind of behind it. You, you can't have freedom for free it was actually just graffiti that they had seen while they were on tour. And I thought that it's interesting how they see a bit of graffiti and all of a sudden it, it molds itself into this um, closing track. And obviously by the time it picks up, you're talking about a heavier tune, which I thought again was a nice bookend and contrast to sections of, of the title track, which are obviously so heavy. And it, and it also probably feels a bit heavier just because it's coming on the heels of tears, which is, you know, a, you know, the, the ballad on the album. Yeah. I, I like this song a lot. It, it kind of harkened back to the, the older rush, I think um, a little more just kind of straightforward rock song. Um, but good stuff. I, I also thought it was very interesting. The, um, the imagery that um, the song's about. And, and um, it's interesting, I guess, like as their song free will that would come out a few years later shows that like, that's a concept that they um, have gone back to about free will and, and decision-making and things of that nature. And um, there's a quote I'm going to pull from um, Wikipedia from Neil Pert regarding the song. Um, and he says, uh, all those paeons uh, to American restlessness and the American road carried a tinge of wistfulness, uh, an acknowledgement of the hardships of the vagrant life, the notion that wanderlust could be involuntary, exile as much as freedom, and indeed the understanding that freedom wasn't free. So, you know, it's not just a bunch of dudes throwing some lyrics down about, uh, you know, places they've smoked pot throughout the world. It's, <laughs> you know, it, and, and, and again, like not just from a musical standpoint, when I say that there's a lot of sides of rush on display on this album, it's a lot of lyrical, um, areas too. Cause like, you know, you're going from like this, this fictional futuristic 2112 to a, a song about a pot to song about the twilight zone you know and now we have this is you know a little bit more uh introspective and and um just about you know a, a more of a philosophical sociological uh lyrical uh lyrical theme um I, and this album really does kind of in a short amount of time span a lot of lyrical and and musical themes yeah it does and i guess that's kind of the magnificence of the band I'm curious to know, this is obviously an album that clocks in in under 40 minutes and as well as should, right? It's 1976. Vinyl is, is what everyone is, is listening to. And, and this is kind of just how long albums were at the time. Did you find that it was actually more enjoyable because it was a shorter album? And, and the reason I say this is we all know what people's attention spans are now. They look for the single. They don't listen to anything else on the album. 
I'm an anomaly. I listen to entire albums still from beginning to end. But there was something that I liked about having this short album that I could play, take a break, do something else, do some work, and then go back to the album. And it felt like it just was fresh because it was shorter. Does that? Am I alone here, or did you think it was too short? No, I actually completely agree with you, and I have used that as a um, as a negative comment for albums we've talked about in the past, where um, the album was short to the point where it was kind of leaving me wanting more. But I feel like in this case, they did it was just the right length, and maybe part of it too is that like I was kind of uh, like crushed for for time or pressed for time this week. So being able to listen to an album that was a quick listen was from a matter of convenience was um, really nice. But um, I, I also didn't, I will say it me, it left me wanting to listen to more rush, but not more 2112, just more other rush songs. And I kind of like dotted through the discography after this and listened to some of my favorite uh, rush tunes through the years, just because it, it kind of, um, re-sparked that love for the band, but um, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think I think this album really is the right length, and yeah, I think it is refreshing that not everything needs to be, especially when it comes to prog music, where bands are were in the '90s like trying to get as much they can onto a compact disc to the point where like you know, if a disc held 74 minutes of, of material, there was a 73 minute and 57 second album, <laughs> just cramming as much as you can. Um, you know, it was kind of nice, like short, but sweet. And, and, you know, they were like, we could get all what we needed to get done in a shorter amount of time without belaboring the point. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I definitely want to do some more rush albums in the future, just because, um, they're so different from one another and there's so much, there's so much here. As I said, this used to be my favorite. I don't know that it is anymore, but 2112 is, is definitely my favorite rush tune of all of them. It's kind of interesting. Just a couple of more anecdotes. Number one, what a phenomenal live band. It is an absolute shame, uh, that we will never get to see this band live again. I had the pleasure of seeing them twice, uh, once at Jones Beach about, oh, just over 15 years ago. And then I saw them once again um, in a stadium probably about six or seven years ago. Um, when I say that they are one of the best live bands on the planet, uh, I would put them right up there with Iron Maiden as maybe the two best. They are that good. And the fact that they would cram that much music into a three-hour show, again, well into their 60s, is nothing short of a miracle. Yeah, I um, I regrettably never got to see them live. And, and uh, I kept putting it off and saying to myself like oh they'll tour again and even when they broke up i was like yeah sure everybody breaks up like you know guns and roses broke up like how did that go but had i known that you know neil pert wasn't in in great health and that the retirement was more about his health i might have uh revisited that mindset and maybe gotten off my butt and and went to see them because now i never will and that's a you know that's a forever going to be a regret of mine yeah, well, the good news is they have a million DVDs and Blu-rays and, and live albums and bootlegs. So there's there's no shortage of live material out there. Um, this particular album came out in 2016 with a 40th anniversary edition. And the reason I bring that up is because side two of the album actually starts with all of these songs, with the exception of Lessons, being performed by other artists, including Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters, 
Billy Talent, Steve Wilson of Porcupine Tree fame, and Allison Chains, amongst others. I love some of these performances because each of these bands put their own little twist on the original songs themselves. And I thought it was really well done and just a testament to the reach of this band because you have musicians from all different walks of life um, coming together to just record and kind of pay tribute to, to this classic album. I'm a huge fan of the, uh, the Canadian punk rock band, Billy talent. And I thought passage to Bangkok was like such a perfect choice for them because it sounds like a Billy talent song. Um, it's like such a, I don't know how to explain it. It was just such like, I, I was listening to it. I was like, this just makes sense. Like of, of a band for a band to cover a song. I was like, this is like the perfect Billy talent song for, or first like perfect rush song for Billy talent to cover. Um, it just, it totally encapsulates their, kind of vibe so i of all these covers which are all excellent i thought this one was particular particularly interesting um also because it was from like a punk rock band um instead of you know a a rock band like uh you know the guys from the foo fighters or or a prog rock guy like steven wilson or you know a a more of a grungier band like alice and chain so i thought this was super cool and there's also some cool um live outtakes and stuff also on the uh the bonus disc or the the second disc so um definitely worth checking out it was very cool to to hear some other bands takes on on these classic tunes yeah and terry brown's production just still holds up because sonically it sounds good which is something we often talk about i just think that the sound on this album is so loud and not loud but so so powerful and when you think about the fact that you have three guys performing these types of songs it's incredible incredible that three musicians can come together and play this kind of music it's just i mean it, it blows my mind every time scale of i one- think that i think that like you compare an album like this from that was released in 1976 to an album we reviewed last week by amorphous which was released 20 years later and i feel like this album sounds significantly better uh, from a production standpoint than the amorphous album that was released you know, two decades later. So without question, scale of one to 10, what, what are you giving this album? Um, I, I would give it a 9.0. It's, it's definitely in, uh, in higher, you know, higher echelon of, of albums. Um, I mean, I think it gets a 9.0 from the title track alone. I don't really think even the rest of side B matters <laughs> at this point. Like you, when you release such an epic classic, prog rock you know just uh, just this this unbelievable suite um that is just iconic to the genre and really to just rock music in general um yeah i mean that's pretty much it if i think if the side two songs were more songs that kind of blew me out of the water then this would be closer to a perfect score i just think that the rest of the songs are are very good but not like out of this world and there are definitely other rush songs that i like quite a bit more um i would actually really like to kind of dive into a bit of their bit more of their kind of late mid to late 80s stuff because i t- find myself gravitating towards songs like um like subdivisions and um there's another one i really like um oh distant early warnings another one like that i guess that's uh what 1984 um you know, big money, like 
the 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 power windows grace under pressure uh signals like i guess it's more of the 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 mid 80s early to mid 80s i i should have said uh, there's something about that era where um again like every other band they were you know kind of um adding a lot more synth and and keyboard um sounds to to their to the band i mean van halen did it too like just so many bands were doing it and and so like i hear those songs and those songs really really resonate um with me so um that's an era that um of songs where like i guess i would just to to wind it up what i'm babbling on is if if the song if like subdivisions and distant early warning were on the second side of 2112 this then it would probably be closer to a 10 i just think that you know like lessons and tears you know are, are are very good songs but not great in my opinion so yeah i would agree it's a nine for me as well i think the title track as i said would be a would be a 27 out of 10 if i could give it a if i could give it a rating just because it's perfect um what i would say is you know nowadays i don't know that i would say it's my absolute favorite rush album and i say that only because i think that there are other albums that have phenomenal songs and they're more balanced Uh, i think balanced is really the, the best word to describe it um, maybe I'll choose one of those in the not so distant future. We can revisit one of those albums, but I'll, to me, uh, an album like farewell to Kings, which was, uh, the follow-up effort is, is probably their best album top to bottom. Although, you know, I could put on hemispheres and, and probably say the same thing just because of how awesome that album is. I mean, it's, it's, there's such a good band and there's so many great tracks. It's, it's hard to say, but I'll, I'll give it a nine. Um, and we'll, we'll put a ball on it there and just say that this was a, you know, I can't believe that this album is 45 years old. It, it holds up every bit as well as I'm sure it did when people first heard it back in the day. Yeah, without a doubt. And, and I really do look forward to, um, revisiting Rush because I, I like my, my knowledge of the band's material is very surface level. Unfortunately, um, it's just a lot of, you know, it's probably better than most people that know the songs from the radio, but you know, I'd say that it's probably like closer to like what the, you know, the two disc chronicles, um, collection would entail. Maybe like Russia, I'm more like knowledgeable of Russia's like top 30 songs of all time rather than their top 10. But I mean, they have, you know, well over a hundred original songs. So, I mean, I really owe it to myself to dig further into their uh their deep catalog for sure and to be fair that is a great collection it's just you're really just it, you're getting below the surface but you're not going deep with the with with that collection um i remember when i first bought that uh, i bought that and i bought 2112 and that then my 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 ears were just blown off and i wound up buying it all but um i guess we'll transition and we'll say this you know, next week it is your choice. I, I had obviously picked Rush. I'm very curious to hear what we're going to be covering next week. I have no idea. Well, uh, you gave me a choice last week, so I'm going to give you a choice. Um, and I want I wanted to go back to a um, a band that we hadn't haven't talked about yet. Um, so I and I've thought of three pretty pretty you know big bands in the metal world that we. For whatever reason, uh, you know, we're are we past forty episodes already? Yeah, uh, I believe is, this is uh, forty-two or forty-three. 42. Yeah, so three three bands came to mind that we have not talked about it at at length yet. So I'm gonna let you choose. Uh, I'm gonna pick an album from each of these three bands. I'm gonna let you choose which one we're gonna talk about. Um, okay. 
The first one would be uh, Hammerfall's Legacy of Kings album from 1998. Uh, we have not talked about Hammerfall, and um, I don't think, um, but we're getting a little long in the tooth with episodes, so maybe I'm getting to the point where I'm going to forget what we <laughs> talked about. But I'm fairly certain. Uh, nope, that, we, we have, I think we, we have, have we have talked about them um, in passing, I'm sure, but um, we haven't done a, a, a full a full length. Uh, episode so um that's uh, that's probably my favorite of their albums so that's why i chose it um very good the second choice would be uh sonata artica's debut album ecliptica from 1999 um it's another band that we uh haven't discussed yet and um i feel like as much as they have a lot of really good albums in their early period i just always circle back to that first one um just because that was such a it was the first band that i kind of found out about on my own and got to like share with everybody else instead of everybody else sharing a band with me so that kind of has a a special place and the final choice would be um royal hunt's paradox album from 1997 another band we haven't discussed at full length but is uh you know very like one of my all-time favorite prog metal bands and, and one of the best out there. And I think a band that's a little bit underrated personally. Um, and I think have made uh, a real, a really good number of albums in there. The last four, three or four albums with DC Cooper rejoining the band, kind of uh, rekindling that, that past magic that they had in, in the late nineties. So um, yeah, with that long winded uh, choice, <laughs> choices uh out there i'll let you choose one of those and needless to say i'm sure we'll speak about all three albums at some point but um what are we going to talk about next week i guess so we we had actually a request for royal hunts paradox so i know for a fact we'll be getting to that eventually so for that reason i'm going to put that one aside i am in the mood to listen to some hammerfall so i'm going to actually go with choice a legacy of kings uh some cool stories that come out of that time period obviously and just uh, a band that I don't really listen to very much anymore, but I love that album, so I'll, I'll look forward to going back with, with some clean ears um, on that one. And plus, like I said, it's a, an interesting time um, in the heavy metal world back in like 1998. So I think I, I want to go back there for a little bit. Let's do let's do Hammerfall. All right, awesome. Looking forward to it. So uh, with that, enjoy uh, enjoy the rest of your week, bud, and I will talk to you soon. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll do Legacy of Kings next week. Yeah, I, I could, I, and I could definitely see myself just listening to more Rush going forward, and maybe making more of an attempt to just throw on a random album here and there, and just really try to give it a, a better listen. Because again, it's like I've given Rush very similar to what I've given Iron Maiden, which is kind of like the greatest, the the greatest hits extended uh, treatment. You know, like you know get a double disc greatest hits album and you pretty much have my knowledge of of both bands so um again you know the, this podcast is definitely giving me an opportunity to to dig deeper into bands that i should be digging deeper into um it's just giving me a reason to do it so and that's uh, uh that's why we do it so uh i'm glad i'm glad it was a success and i uh, i look forward to talking about some hammerfall next week enjoy yeah, the rest here. of your week bud i'll talk to you, you soon too, pal. all righty take care <laughs>